Welcome to the Locking Castle Church podcast. This Sunday morning teaching was given as part of the Spirit-Led Summer series. Hello, how are we all this morning? Good, we're good. I was told that today was one of those dry bones day. I, was, I found out a few days ago that this is one of those Sundays that people tend not to like to come to church. It's the last Sunday... And I'm surprised by that too. It's the last Sunday of, well, the first Sunday of the school holidays. That's correct, isn't it? So apparently lots of people skive off. I'm not seeing much skiving off here. I'm not seeing too much dry bones here at all. I'm seeing a church that's alive and awake. Are you alive and awake this morning? Are you alive and awake this morning? Very good, very good. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for eschewing the brilliant British weather, which is improving I uh, couldn't get much worse, could it? And thank you for those of you who laugh at my jokes while I'm up here as well. I try to warm you up a bit, have a bit of back and forth, and I hope that helps set you at ease. And I, I really do thank both of you who laugh at my jokes on a regular basis. There you go. Right then. This morning I will be bringing you another spirit-led sermon. But it's not the sermon I wanted to bring you. When I started working out what I would bring you today... I delved into scripture and I tried obviously to listen to what God's saying to me. I tried to tune in and listen to God's guidance as best I could. So I started writing what I thought would fit the bill based on a recent experience. See, recently, a few weeks ago, one of our plans as a family got suddenly turned upside down. Our son Samuel, he turns four in August and then he... And I'll cut a long story short, completely out of the blue, we were told in no uncertain terms that Samuel no longer had a place to start school. Anywhere. Full stop. It was a confusing time, as you'd imagine. We hammered on every door. We had so many people praying. Um, you know, we just, we just, we could, but we couldn't get any answers. We couldn't change the situation. We were stuck. We, um, we were left calling out for God. And on a personal level, I was wondering in this. I prayed so hard for Samuel's school situation. Without going into the detail, my school experience was astoundingly negative. So it was crucial to me that when Samuel went to school, everything was set up nicely. He knew who his teachers would be. It would be smooth sailing. But that was pulled away from underneath us. So I was crying out to God, where have you gone? Why have you let this happen? And where's your goodness now then? Throughout this time of what was genuine turmoil, I scribed my sermon. I was convinced that this is what God, as distant as he felt at that moment, wanted me to bring to you this morning. I wrote on grief and on disappointment and tied it all in with my personal life experiences of that chasm between the expectation of God's goodness and the often haunting reality of what experience life can be. I felt so sure, so certain, that this is what God wanted me to bring to you this morning. So when I turned up a couple of Sundays ago, and I was forced to sit there and listen to the brilliant Cat Watts preach pretty much the exact same sermon (laughs) I had written. Anyone who saw me stomp in her direction about 20 seconds after she sat down can probably imagine how I felt, but I will say she did a better job of it than I would have. You can guess how I felt. Proverbs 16, verse 9. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. I very suddenly realized that God was sitting me down and forcing me to listen. 
So I felt a bit put in my place, and that's good because one of my big concerns when I'm up here at the front is that my naturally sparkling personality over... The, the exit's there, mate. My naturally sparkling personality gets in the way of God's word, and I, I don't want that to be the case. I don't want this to be the Matthew show. But I had to trust that God knew what he was doing when he put me in this position of privilege at the front, almost a cloak of authority temporarily placed upon me to bring his word. So I went back to the drawing board. This time I felt certain that I had heard God. It was made clear to me what I needed to say, and I made an effort to humble myself. I got on my knees that day, and I thank God for his goodness. I threw my own will away, and I prayed that I could accept God's will, no matter how much I did dislike it. The next day, we received written confirmation that Samuel's school place situation had been resolved, and in a way we couldn't possibly have imagined. He'll now attend the school that we prayed he would probably about a year ago now, that we really wished he would go to a beautiful school with a Christian ethos, and he can't wait to attend. Everything lined up perfectly, and looking back, it's completely obvious that God had the whole thing in hand from day one. So there's your sermon, nice and easy, well wrapped up in time for you to go home early and pop the kettle on. Nice early lunch, maybe pop to Subway. Just trusting God, everything turns out fine. It's easy, right? Is, is, is that the truth? Hands up if that's the truth. Is that the truth? You trust in God and life is easy. I love it because there's a duality there, isn't there? There's some truth in that. And also, no, trusting's tricky. And when I was going through that inner turmoil regarding Samuel's school place, it so mattered to me. And I openly admit that I wasn't trusting God at all. The majority of my prayers were prayers asking for control. That I could do or say something in my power, in my strength, to affect that outcome. That God would put my will into place and not his. It's obvious now that I suffered more in my imagination than I did in reality because God had everything in control behind the scenes the whole time. I suffered because I was trying to control what God was doing. And that's normal. That's human. Don't blame yourselves when you do that because you will. It's also a recurring theme in Scripture. I said I'd let you get home to lunch, so this morning I will very briefly touch on just a few examples of where trusting God and wrestling for control feature across the Bible. Let's start with Jonah and that pesky whale. In chapter 1, Jonah has just been asked to nip down to Nineveh, have a word about what's going on there. But instead of sticking to God's plan, Jonah hops on a ship. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Now, this is the very, very beginning of the book. And from the outset, there's a huge power struggle. We're often obsessed with this concept of, oh, could a man be eaten by a big fish? But we're ignoring this power struggle because God is clear, totally clear to Jonah. Jonah hears the Lord. He doesn't like what the Lord's saying. And he thinks, ah, stuff that, I'm off. So God makes it awkward. He whips up a storm. Jonah is thrown overboard, a sacrifice thrown to appease at his request. And Jonah isn't dumb, it's another step in his plan. When he asks the crew of the ship to throw him overboard, he's still trying to take control of his situation. If Jonah drowns, he still gets what he wants. He'll have managed to run away from God. He'll end up being the one 
in control. But you know how the story goes. Large fish gobbled up. Jonah realizes he's been a bit of a fool, and he gets to praying. During chapter 2, Jonah prays to God and makes the reluctant first steps to do as God commands. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Suddenly, after running away from God, he realizes his position. And suddenly, he's God's best friend. At this point, you could argue that it's a, it's a very feeble acceptance. It's a very reluctant acceptance of God's control. In verse 10, God commands the fish, and it spits Jonah out so he can continue his journey, continue doing God's will. Jonah's accepting the Lord's will. He makes his way to Nineveh, and he takes it from there. And that pattern is easy to miss, but it runs throughout the whole book of Jonah. Back and forth as man and God wrestle over control. So that's an example based around one person and that person holding on to control. Let's take a quick look at the inverse of that, found in, uh, in this instance, the first chapter of Colossians. Written for the churches in Colossae and Laodicea, Apostle Paul and Timothy start with a greeting, the usual thanksgiving, and then they dive straight in to the meat of it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. In the original Greek, the word used for will can be translated back into English as desire. It's easy to think of God's will as a framework or a, a command for our lives, but perhaps we should think of God's will as more of God's burning desire for how our lives could look, his burning desire for how our lives could be. And then look at what verse 10 says immediately afterwards. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. There's more than a mere suggestion here that if you're filled with the Spirit and you're blessed with that discernment of God's will via the wisdom received, then you'll bear fruit in every good work and continue to grow. And that was the case for this church. But what's the opposite of that? Let's, let's consider the opposite of this. What's the opposite of that virtuous cycle? I would say the opposite of that is ignoring God's burning desire for you. It's ignoring God's burning desire for how your life could be and stubbornly sitting in isolation from God's plan. And let's refer back to our reading from earlier, the book of Job. An upright and morally good man who repeatedly suffers the most appalling disasters. Now, this is my favorite book of the Bible by far. It pulls no punches, and I find beauty in its intricate and profound portrayal of what existence can genuinely sometimes be. Job had a wonderful life taken away from him, and you hear about all of the intricate implications of God and Satan and the boundaries of control. Job lost everything, and he was suffering. Let's skip ahead to Job 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is conceived, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. It's, it's heavy stuff. I'll skip ahead to Job 6, verses 8 and 9, and the theme continues. Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand, 
and cut off my life. Now, there's so much context, so much rich detail. I'm forced to leave out of these examples for brevity. But here it's clear that Job laments not just his current existence. He wishes he'd never even had the opportunity to exist in the first place. Some will argue that Job wanted to die, that he wanted to commit suicide. And, and personally, I don't believe that at all. Job laments the way his life has gone. I'm mean, sure he, he wishes he didn't have to experience those negatives. But Job's clearly an eloquent, reasonable man. He would have simply said if he lost his faith and he planned to end it all. But he didn't. Instead, we read of a man crying out in anguish, but he hasn't lost his faith. It's wavered, of course it has. But he's crying out to God so that God's control can win. As much as he dislikes his situation, so vehemently pushes back against it, he's not considering taking things into his own hands. It's the same story again. Job wants to control his existence to the point where he'll even ask God to take that existence away. And we are fed by the world such a lie that we can control that existence. Control is such a big thing in, in daily life. As humans, we love to think that we're in control. It's a deep-rooted thing in our makeup. So we crave this illusion of control. And that's what it is. It's an illusion. We can take control of our life with a new product or service. We can take control of our finances with this bank account. It's all transactional. With the world, you're never truly the one in control. And we hate the idea of being controlled by somebody else. As a society, we detest the thought that we're not the ones in control of every detail of our destiny. So who controls our church? You, you can shout out, who controls our church? It's God, absolutely. It is God. And yet we still wish to see people running it. We still wish to see the natural human hierarchy so that we feel comfortable that at least some humans are in control. We detest the idea of God being truly in control. It freaks us out no end. But we don't even control the objects we own. If your car suddenly stops working, you can turn the wheel, you can press the pedals all you want, but you will not get to your destination. Control is an illusion, and it's actually very easily shattered when we pay attention. But admitting it hurts our ego. Admitting that we're not in control minimizes our strength. It is a huge struggle to acquiesce to God's will and to live in his strength because it is the ultimate metaphorical form of giving away your life. It's countercultural. It doesn't make any sense, but we all know we should be doing it anyway. When Jonah turns around and starts trusting God, he hands over control, God upholds him. The church at Colossae continued for several centuries, no doubt staying filled with that vibrancy and love as they lived in God's burning desire for them. And when we look at the end of Job, God appears via storm to effectively sit Job down and remind him who's in control. It's easy to mistake God's words as a diatribe, but God's meteorological rebuke helps Job's, uh, Job realize his place, that he's not in control and he can't be. One note on Job, though. If you read through it, at the end of the final chapter, chapter 42, Job gets everything back. Well, some people will say, yeah, well, don't worry, you'll read Job. It's a bit scary, but don't worry. It works out in the end. Don't let that fool you. I won't sell you a lie. You can follow God. You can want to be in his will. You can do everything right. And sometimes things will just not turn out as you planned. 
things are not guaranteed for you. You are still probably going to have to face some suffering, even if you get everything right. But you'll suffer a lot less if you give up that need for control and trust that God being in control is the right thing for you. So how might we do that? How can we achieve putting God God in control to help us better trust in him and give up our need for control? Well, firstly, we need to listen. And that sounds easy, but if you want to get better at trusting, you need to get better at listening. Read the Bible, stick on a podcast, engage and debate with a life group. We, we know what we have to do. We just have to do it. Try something new, creative. Perhaps sit down and silently wait. Just wait and wait to hear the Lord's voice. That last one's important because it requires space. We need to make space for God so that he can speak to us. We need to be paying attention or we won't hear. A while back, Carolyn demanded that I get a hearing test. And being the dutiful, you know, obedient husband I am, I did. It turns out that my hearing is impeccable. But the audiologist did say that I was one of many husbands that week whose wives had sent them for hearing tests. What I needed to do was not check my hearing, but start listening to my wife. Christians and I have the same problem. We can hear just fine, but perhaps we're not really listening. So try to carve out some quiet, devoted time to hear his voice. And of course, you've got to pray. If it matters to me, I'll pray about it. You have a trust muscle. Here it is. You ready? Can you see that? It's not the best example of a muscle I appreciate. My, my wrist starts here, and it goes up to there. But we have a trust muscle. When we pray, when we hand over a bit of trust to God, it strengthens that trust muscle. And that's something I really do believe in. Every morning now, I pray for big things and small things. Uh, for a few years now, every morning, I've prayed for the business. And on many mornings, my mother joins me on that. She has a huge trust muscle. And we commit our wishes to heaven, but we say, God, you run this. I don't run a business. God does. I'm down here pressing buttons and sending the odd email. God runs the thing. So that's a big thing I hand over. And... I pray for God's will in the small things too. Now, culturally, we don't want to do that. We don't want to pester people. We think, oh, I won't bother God with that. Oh, my manky toe, that's not too bad. I won't bother that. And it, you know, culturally, we believe in that. We just don't like to bother people. But God cares. If it matters to us, it matters to God. So exercise your prayer muscle with that too. God wants us to bother him on the small stuff that matters to us. I would argue that if you refuse, even the small things, to trust and seek God's help with your problems, you're isolating yourself with those very same problems. And even small problems are not particularly good company to keep. His plan for you isn't just about the big stuff. So if it matters to you, big or small, pray about it. Work at that prayer muscle. And then pray that you accept the answer, because it's not easy. And we do need to follow some biblical examples of acceptance. And here are just a few I picked up in places you may not even realize. We, we, we prayed it earlier, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One of the Psalms, Psalm uh, 37, 3 to 5, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will do this. And even Jesus, Luke twenty-two forty-two. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
We've been shown by Jesus how to pray. And it involves the Father's one uh, will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Make it on earth as it is in heaven. Psalm 37 outlines that once our desires align with the Lord's, we'll live out that reality. And Jesus himself petitioning his own will, yet still accepting and gaining a little more acceptance so that the Father's will can be done. I would argue that a primary goal of all prayer is to align our will with the will of God. That each prayer, we give away a little bit more control and gain a little more acceptance so that our will naturally matches his. And that's trust. That's control. And that's giving it up to God. And it's difficult. I get it. This is not the big, boisterous, happy, cheery sermon you may have wanted today. But I believe that this morning I have brought you what God actually wanted me to say. Sometimes we need to be forced to engage with what God is trying to say, and then we need to be brave enough to acquiesce control to his will. I don't believe it's a coincidence that three people, three weeks in a row, have given such powerful testimony to God's goodness and faithfulness despite trial and tribulation, that three people testified that God's will and vision for their lives, even if things don't pan out as we wanted them to, is fundamentally good. I don't know what God is saying to you individually, but as a group, as a body, as a church, I'm not convinced it's a coincidence. Maybe God is trying to say something. Let's try to identify for ourselves where we're trying to keep that illusion of control in place in our daily lives. And as a church, there's control there too. Some try to avoid the word, but I'll call it what it is. It's change. We've been through change in our church. It can't be ignored, and change is good. Because as individuals and as a church, if you're not changing, you're dying. Change is awkward. It's scary. We don't even like to mention it. But if you keep doing the same thing you always did, you're dying. If you stop growing when the opportunity is there, you're dying. If you choose to stay comfortable when God places something upon you and say, that isn't for me, or I don't like how that's done, or that's not going to be the thing that I'm getting involved with, then you, chances are, are not growing, you're dying. If you keep doing the same thing, you know what happens. But, you'll be pleased there's a but. Clearly, we are a church that's alive. Jesus moves with us individually and amongst us. So we need to listen. And we need to lean on those biblical examples of God blessing and enriching people and ministries when they're willing to give up control to him. Earlier we all sang, I will let you draw me out beyond the shore into your grace. So let's make a commitment today that we strive to relinquish our human need for control and hand it all over to God. And then let's prepare ourselves. Let's get ready to expect. Let's get ready to expect God's will to be good for us, for him to come good on his promises. He doesn't speak in vain. No syllable is empty or void. Because God's plans with his imprints upon them, not ours, his imprints upon them bring life in abundance. Shall we pray into that right now? Thank you for listening. To find out more about Locking Castle Church, please visit our website at lockingcastlechurch.org.